0: Now, if you feel like you're spending too much on your beauty routine, you need to know about Beauty Pie. Rosie and I have been members for months now and we love when our orders arrive.
1: Beauty Pie stocks high quality skincare, hair care, makeup and more direct from the best labs in Switzerland, France, Germany and Japan for unbeatably low prices. There are no middlemen, no huge retailer markups so you shop and get up to five times more for your money. It's just genius. And right
0: now, join Beauty Pie and use the code LKSentMe, all one word, in the promo code box at checkout, and you will get £10 off your first order. Go to beautypie.com to find out more. So here we are, another episode of What If? What If with me, Lorraine? And me, Rosie. And I am so looking forward to this chat today with Gabby Logan. Mm. She's a trailblazer. She's a trailblazer and she's made it easier, so much easier for lots of women journalists in sport to, to do their job. And I think that's really, really, really important. We've got so much to talk to you. Gabby, it's so good to see you. How are you? I'm very well. <laughs> Lovely to see you both too. And you, and you. It's great. I mean, you, you grew up in a sporty house though, didn't you?
2: I mean, it was all, it was all around you when you were a kid. Yeah, well, my dad was a professional footballer. And my mom, she, I wouldn't say she's not sporty. <laughs> in the sense she, she always tells us she was an ice skater because we can't really prove that, can ah. we? Um, uh, she did have some boots. But she, um, she was very much what the Americans would call the soccer mom because there were four of us kids all doing different sports, all doing it at different times. And she was, you know, that, that proverbial taxi driver, driving us all around to different sporting activities while my dad was still playing, still managing. So, yeah, sport was very much our thing. Which you don't know at the time when you're a kid that that's not everybody's thing because that's your that's your reality isn't it as a child exactly mm.
1: and did where did that did the love of sport come from at home then or did you do it a lot of school because did it become at school rather than at home if that makes
2: sense yeah it was it was both actually because obviously when I think if I'd been born into a musical family or a family that was really interested in I don't know science or you know you you kind of pick up don't you on what your parents interests mm. are and um I think my dad's love of what he did and the fact it was all consuming naturally meant there was a lot of that on the telly or whatever sport was on the telly this is pre-sky days you know mm. so you'd probably have one football match a week then it's difficult to imagine isn't it a time mm, when there was one really football is. match on yeah. um so sport was part of all our lives and then at school obviously we did school sport but we went to schools that weren't particularly brilliant at sport it wasn't you know we went to state schools in the 80s where teachers were on strike and often sport was the first thing that went so my sport really was outside of school when I was doing gymnastics I was going to a club which was a, a really lovely local club run by some brilliant as always in grassroots sports and brilliant people who just you know charged us two pounds a session and <laughs> kept turning up and kept enthusing us and kept coaching us and um, and that's where it all started really to to kind of grow and become a bit more serious and, and then on the telly things like the Olympics would really inspire me because that's where I saw women doing sport. And I remember the LA Olympics, that was a moment of of real kind of penny dropping moment for me where I just thought, wow, this is amazing. This is I'd love to do this somewhere, somehow, you know. And
0: you did and represented your country, represented Wales. Yeah. You you really did. I mean, but that is utterly all consuming if you are doing gymnastics, especially at that sort of level you don't have much time for anything else, I would have thought.
2: No, you spend a lot of your outside school life either doing your homework or doing your gymnastics and there wasn't much time for a lot else. And I did have a great group of friends who recognised that I was really into this and then I might only do one in every eight social events. you know. So yeah. <laughs> And so they, yeah. they didn't kind of exercise me completely from the group. you know. They, they, let me, they let me kind of dip in and out. And then they were really proud of me when things went well. And, and so my mum always said to me, actually, you're really lucky, your friend's... They're not jealous. They're not mm. um, resentful of you. They're very, you know, she, she didn't say it in those terms, but I remember her once saying to me how, how rare that was as a teenage girl to kind of, you know, find your tribe and also the tribe let you operate out. I see that with my own kids and I see them with their dynamics of friendships and how, how complicated and confusing it is, isn't it, when you're a teenager? Mm. So I was really lucky to to be able to have a bit of a social life. But I just, you know what, I didn't want to do any more than I did. I just loved gymnastics so much i didn't feel i was sacrificing and i think that's the thing that's quite hard for teenagers isn't it i mean i hear myself saying it to my son sometimes and i kind of give myself a, a, the proverbial kind of you know slap across the face because i'll say to him well you've got to sacrifice if you want but actually no if you don't want to do if you don't want to sacrifice don't do it because yeah. you really have to love it and you have to want to do it otherwise it becomes a bit of a chore and it shouldn't really feel like that i think sport no mm. absolutely of course it shouldn't
1: and do you ever think about you know what if you had kept with gymnastics and kept kept going.
2: It wasn't really an option, Rosie, because I I, was—I got injured in the Commonwealth Games for once. I had a sciatica. And so I had a few months out of the sport and it was a point where I was doing my A-levels. And this is pre-national lottery. So there was no funding for the sport. It was all, Mm. I did get a couple of grants from sports aid and things, but it wasn't ever going to be a sport I would earn a salary from per se. A lot of gymnasts gone actually at that time went on to things like Cirque du Soleil and my own sister went to Cirque du Soleil. So you could use your gymnastics in a different way, but I wasn't ever going to be a professional gymnast. And, And so when I got injured, I was doing my A-levels and I thought right maybe it's time to just knuckle down on this now what I do kind of regret is almost having a sport that I had to finish so soon because or a sport that was never going to lead to a career you know if I picked up a set of golf clubs at eight years old instead of (laughs) being obsessed with gym or tennis racket well I did play tennis but that's another story there was no indoor tennis courts where we lived in Leeds at the time so I had to stop playing because in the winter you couldn't play for six months so so I do I do think back to kind of like how my life would be so different now as a child there are so many options for girls now you know you look at the cricket that's been on this summer it's been amazing you know 17 year olds playing on telly the 100 on the BBC and obviously women's rugby women's football team sports are just now uh, women's hockey is so different and it's Brilliant! It's just amazing that girls have got role models that they see on the telly. They've got opportunities as well to and pathways, and you know the the eighties was a very different place. I think for women in sport and girls in sport.
0: No, it really was. Mm. It has got better. Yeah. Yeah. Getting better, and I think you're you're very much part of that, Um, because you have to see. You know, there's a whole generation of young women growing up who saw you on telly and thought, oh, I can do that. I mean, you've got to see it, haven't you, before you think you can be it in a way.
2: Yeah, and it applies across the board in lots of different areas, doesn't it? And, you know, when I was a kid, textbooks still had only kind of, you know, stories about male scientists and things like that. And I was recently <laughs> judging a um, the National Society Science Book of the Year for Kids. And it's amazing now how they tell science to to young people with regard to women and you know and so it's it's opening opportunities in lots of different i've always said about women's football for example i the last women's world cup was in france and it was phenomenally successful 11 million watched the semi-final where england went out to usa and it's not important that girls watch that because they want to be footballers it's important that girls watch that so they see there are opportunities beyond what they perhaps have been culturally brought up to think of as for them you know so my own daughter had not played football but she loved it because she loved women achieving something and doing well at something that in the past has perhaps not seemed like it was for her so it's breaking all those different stereotypes and and having a more um a more balanced view i think you know that's what we have to try and achieve isn't it across the board in in broadcasting no definitely i mean for goodness sake when i was say. When
0: I was working in the 80s as a reporter, we didn't really have any female reporters. I was a real...
1: Yeah. You were go, weren't you? I was
0: an oddity because I would go... Well, right. I was doing everything for TVAM and sport was part of that. And obviously football, <laughs> a big part of that too. And and you would feel like a complete outsider. So it is fantastic that things are getting better. And yet for you, you went to do law at university. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, w-
2: yeah I, w- I, I was... Um, I wanted to go to university and nobody in my family had done at that point um, on either side and and I I, I did well at school and and it was something that I I felt like I kind of wanted to pursue. My mum had kind of sacrificed her education in a way when she met my dad because she wanted to go to university down south and she's from Leeds and she met my dad who was playing for Leeds United and he persuaded her to go to beauty college in Manchester instead because it meant she'd just be a short train ride away and and (laughs) I felt like I wanted to do that and then I also thought well if I'm going to go to university I'll do a, a serious sounding degree I'll do <laughs> something that sounds proper and um and so I really enjoyed law I loved it but I realized after about a year that I actually wanted to be in bro- I wanted to work in broadcasting I, I kind of already knew that when I went to university anyway so I started doing lots of work experience on radio and newspapers while I was doing my degree so that when I graduated I I took a job in radio on a breakfast show and I thought if this doesn't go well I'll give it a year and then I can always go do my law conversion and become a barrister um so it's gone all right <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you haven't had to, to actually go back do that, to <laughs> go back to the law. But it's always good to have a backup, isn't it? It's always good to have a plan B.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. And, well, so much of the law that I studied, obviously, has changed dramatically. Yeah. I, I, and and uh, I was laughing about kind of, you know, one of the compulsory courses was European community law. Oh, because, uh, you know Yeah, because at uh, the time, like, well, we're going to be in Europe forever. And so you have to learn about European law. And I was laughing with my daughter the other day, saying, oh my gosh, like, what does what happened to that? Were those lecturers? Where yes. are yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh that's the point
0: isn't it and all of that
2: work yeah. but yeah. you did for good sake it's crazy yeah. isn't it and
1: then your so your first TV job was after uni then after the, all the, yeah. the, the training oh. and how did that come around
2: Well, when I was working on local radio in Newcastle, um, you know what it's like in in local news, um, and especially a city like Newcastle, which has got this... Newcastle's quite far away from anywhere. And so you tend to find with cities like that, and I mean big cities, you know, um, you tend to find that there's this... um, The the, the local TV station is really important and the local radio station is really, really important Mm -hmm. as well. And so Metro FM, the station that I was on, was the the big commercial station. I was on the breakfast show. And they were the the, the station that covered the football. And they asked me if I would do... Saturday interviews uh, Touchline interviews at St James's Park and they said look you're always hanging around the sports team you clearly love your sport but like you were saying before Lorraine I didn't see women doing that so I didn't even know that was a job you know I just thought it was I just used to hang around after my show and chat to them so I started doing these interviews and loved match days and then Sky spotted me and Sky wanted to do uh, wanted to increase their female quota on air and asked me to go down and do a screen test. And this was, I was only a year into post-university, so I would have been, had a year out, so I'd have been about 22, turning 23, went down to Sky, did a screen test, and got offered an amazing job and had to relocate. And, and again, I thought, well, I'll do that for a year, and then I'll probably get a proper job in telly. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I didn't know where that was going to go, you know? So, um, and those were very early days at Sky. The Sky only got the premiership, well, the Premier League started in 92, didn't it? And this was 96. So the landscape was changing. And I was, I suppose, in the right place at that time because things were opening up and things were things were moving.
0: It's hard though, isn't it, um, to break down the barriers sometimes. Um, you obviously know your stuff inside out. You know, you, you absolutely do. You do your homework, you're a grafter, you do all of that. But back in the early days, were there some, you know, maybe some professional footballers or some pundits or some people who just kind of thought, nah, not sure about, you know, not sure about this beautiful woman coming in here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we yeah, don't you know, and yeah. maybe maybe even felt a little bit threatened, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a—I remember a piece in one of the national newspapers written by a very crusty old bloke, basically saying, you know, kind of that people like me were coming along and taking the last strangleholds of maildom and that oh, somehow I was, wow. uh, yeah, and that he was going to have to build a shed in his garden because there was, you know, and it was, this was, you know, this was back in the early 2000s. And uh, and so, but I just, I don't know, I obviously had some really good allies. I had some very good male allies, and I think that's important as well because now I'm really conscious of wanting to reach out and when people ask me for help, to give them help, but there weren't many women there to give help. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like yes. I could look around the, the sports newsroom at Sky and see loads of women and think, "Oh, who's my who's my friend here?" So I, I had some very good um, colleagues, and then there were obviously people who you know weren't quite as kind <laughs> and weren't quite as forthcoming but that happens I think in lots of other professions or was happening in lots of professions anyway if I'd gone into the boardroom of most FTSE 100 companies there wouldn't have been splashed with women all over the place you know if I'd gone into some major law firms there wouldn't be women taking you know the top positions there so, so this wasn't unusual in broadcasting I guess and you will know obviously Lorraine as well and you said your, your experiences when you were covering everything mm. <laughs> you know out there in the field mm. and you were often the only woman and for many years I was doing the England Reporters job for the BBC and I was the only woman on those trips and we're going back you know only like a few years ago so it, it is it is definitely changing but in the early days there was a reticence I think maybe I was a novelty I think it certainly helped I came from a footballing family there was a certain amount of uh, okay all right well you might not be you know here just just because you want to marry a footballer because honestly there was that kind of feeling sometimes that I think like mm. people thought I was going husband hunting or something you know <laughs> so um which <laughs> clearly isn't the case uh, <laughs> It's remarkable. I know. Do you ever yeah. think your
1: career would be different if you were a bloke? I know maybe it wouldn't have happened because if you said you mm. were hired because they wanted to boost the females on, mm.
2: yeah. on air, yeah. I don't I mean, know. On the one hand, it was kind of positive discrimination, wasn't it? Yeah. That I got to go where I, where I was. Um, well, maybe, maybe Rosie, actually, I would have ended up playing professional sport Mm. you know maybe my sporting life would have been different because my brother um who died Daniel was uh, signed for Leeds United he was a footballer and you know so I may have my life might have been very different if I'd wanted to be in broadcasting as a man at that time yeah I I, I don't know how, you know it's really difficult to say isn't it where you mm. where you'd have gone I suppose like I said when I arrived at Sky I didn't know where how was I going to kind of forge a career here because where was I going to go even then my boss at Sky who's no longer uh with us he he was very much like, well, you're not going to present football. You know, he was very matter-of-fact about it. Uh, That's not going to happen here. Luckily, ITV saw things differently. And Mm. um, I got a call in 1998 saying, come over and, you know, we've got shows for you and this is what we'd like to do. And they were really ambitious for me. And that, when I look back now, is pretty amazing, actually. You know, and I kind of think about it, how... How forward-thinking my boss Brian Barwick was at the time. It's real trailblazing stuff. It really
0: is. Mm. You don't think it when you're in it. I don't think no, you don't realise no. the implications. You know, and mm. now we've got women commentating on football mm. matches, as we saw, uh, mm. you know, during the, the recent Euros. And I think it just takes people a little bit of time to get used to that. And mm. then, as soon as you realise they know their stuff, it doesn't matter. Mm. You know, it really, really doesn't matter. As long as somebody's good and as long as somebody's done their homework, um, then it.
2: Does matter yeah. at all? Yeah. I mean, you think you are allowed to have an opinion, you know, and critique, you know, in the same way that there might be male commentators or male presenters that, you know, you, you don't have as much of an affinity with. Totally. So sometimes, you know, and, and I don't want to get to a position, and I think a lot of the female footballers have said this interestingly, that they don't want to be patronised. you know Indeed, what I mean? Indeed, like, absolutely. And, yeah, and absolutely. It's, not just kind of, it's not just kind of bravo, well done for being here, you know, and well done for coming along. <laughs> yeah, actually, well done, dear. You, yeah. If you want balance, and we do want balance, then that comes both ways. But let's just not be critical of somebody just because they're
1: yeah. a woman you know you know it's been a really hard year and sometimes we just need to treat ourselves which is why we love Beauty Pie it's a new shopping club created for beauty and product lovers by the women behind Fit Flop Sandals and Bliss Spa and Soap and Glory at Beauty Pie members can shop for
0: fabulously luxurious beauty and wellness products at straight from the warehouse prices It feels like a splurge, but you're getting a steal. Check it out at beautypie.com and use the promo code LKSENTME, all one word, to get £10 off your first order when you join. Hmm. You mentioned your brother and Hmm. that was a a dreadful, dreadful tragedy because, as you said, you know, there's this fit young man. He's He's a fit young teenager with the whole world at his feet. Um, I mean, something like that happens. It's it's beyond a shock, isn't it? It's so mm. difficult for for all of you, you know, for the, for the whole family, but for for everybody that, that that knew and loved them. And I guess in a way, you can use your profile, your, your you know, the fact you, you can use what you do to help. This is the thing. Mm. about you saying about giving things back. Mm-hmm.
2: No, yeah, that's really, And early on in my career, when I realised that there was. Actually, one of the joys of what we do that you can use that platform you know for causes and and interest things that you want to give a voice to and lend a help you know pull somebody into the limelight to talk about it. It might just be being the figurehead of something or being more proactive and obviously with the the situation Daniel died from he died of cardiomyopathy which is a heart condition congenital heart condition so basically his heart stopped beating but there were no signs that that he was ill or that he had anything wrong with him and it's sudden death and Christian Ericsson of course in the recent Euros collapsed on the pitch oh that was hellish wasn't it that was awful and that's pretty much what happened to Daniel, but Daniel God. didn't do it in a stadium with sixty thousand people and medical support he did mm. it in the back garden and so lost his life and and actually the the sudden death syndrome and testing of the athletes that's still something which needs more awareness and more fibrillators and you know and so actually that that battle's not won yet you know and i've just been talking recently actually to uh, somebody about making a film about that actually about what what is happening with young athletes now how do we screen you know we expect a lot of these people young young footballers are training you know all hours, god sends from the age of 10 11 12 and they're going to end up earning their clubs millions and millions of pounds they are huge enormous assets how are we looking after them you know, how are we making sure that they're going through as healthy as possible? And then that trickles down, doesn't it, to other parts of society and people realise, actually, my golf club needs a fibrillator or, you yes. know, mm. our local guide hut could do with a fibrillator. It's, it's knowing where those things are and being aware of it, I think, is, is really important to, to be able to use that platform.
0: Oh, it's amazing and an amazing tribute to your, to your brother as well. That because, you know, the, the work that you do and the work that's being done, you certainly see a lot more of those, you know, in, in sports stadiums Mm. or you know Mm. or or, or gyms and things like that you you, you really do and it's one of those things you can't quantify but i'm sure by the reason awareness um lives have been saved inevitably they they will be but you're right it's something that you don't think about until it touches you you you, you really don't or you see it you know you see it in in, in the arena like like we did um which was which was shocking oh Mm. awful absolutely Mm. absolutely awful you've had some gosh there was a, a a you know you know when you have these things about, and this is all about what if, isn't it, Ruth? Mm-hmm. We're doing a, a sort of what if thing. And, you know, I remember when we went over to do some filming in New York and we'd been up in the Twin Towers and then it was like, I don't know, a week later they came down. And so many people have got those experiences, Mm, you know, like, oh, mm. I was there or I just missed that or I didn't get Mm. on that train that was blown up or or things happened. But you were at that, um, the Bradford City versus Lincoln City game and that was 1985, I believe, where there was the big big fire broke out. Mm. That was, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget Mm. that. 56 people died there Mm. and you were at that game but left just in time.
2: About a minute or two before the fire started. Jeez, because And where we normally sit, uh, we normally sat, was where the fire pretty much two rows away started. But because it was the final game of the season and because Bradford had just won the league, we suddenly had a, 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 you know, a rush of people coming for tickets. So my parents had to distribute to family and friends and things. And my dad was assistant manager at the time. And yep. my mum said, look, you guys, me, my brother and sister, he said, you guys are going to sit a few blocks away from me. Um, so me, I was only 12 and my sister and brother... We were kind of like, wow, we're sitting on our own, you know, we're hmm. in the stand on our own, and uh, we had our posh clothes on because it was gonna be a party that night. And we were, we always went to the players' lounge at half time. And my mum, is hilarious. I thought a football match was two halves of forty minutes until I became an adult because she always left a few minutes before half time and always arrived a few minutes late, you know, because she was always wanting to get to the bar. And and so she shouted down to us, "I'm I'm going to the bar. Do you want to join me now?" Or and so my brothers and sister and I looked at each other and thought, "We better." Because there'll be a rush because it's busy, you know. So we walked out a few minutes before half time and went into the players' lounge, which was behind the stand that the fire started. And we've been in there just a matter of moments when somebody rushed in and opened the door and smoke was already coming. And he said, get out. There's a fire. Nobody moved. Nobody believed this guy. You know, they just they carried on with their drinks. It was a day of celebration. And then the next thing, he was really screaming and the smoke was really starting to billow through and we were kind of ushered into the street. By the time we got into the street, acrid smoke and tar and it, it was it, it was an inferno that just took off within minutes and you could smell burning in the street. And what we realised, my brother had gone missing, he was 10 at the time, and my mum was panicking because she couldn't see him and um, it took a while for, for somebody to... He'd basically gone to my dad's office because my dad always kept chocolate in his drawer and the, the office was under the ground, so somebody found him. But... Even that in that chaos at that time, you're not computing as a child how close you came, because what happened, the reason why so many people died was because they locked the gates at the back of the turnstiles, at the back of the stand. And so people went the way they'd come in. They didn't go towards the pitch. They walked towards the back of the stand. And when they got there, they were trapped in a corridor that became, you know, like a tunnel, you know, so Mm. the, the fire just ripped through. That's where we would have gone. You know, my sister and brother and I would have gone to the back of the stand. That's where we bought our sports mixtures from and our Seabrooks crisps every week. And, I think it really only hit me that kind of, as an adult, when you look back and realise how close you were. And as a family, to come through it as we did, all unscathed. My dad got a few cuts from jumping out of a window when he was trying to clear another bar. But that was it. You know, we had grandparents there, we had friends there, and we all got out alive that day. And, uh, you know, and and 56 people and their families, you know, have, have suffered ever since. And and so it was a, an enormous tragedy for the whole of football and for the area. And, and the learnings from it are, you talk about repercussions from things and you know, there's a thing called, there's a sling, basically, that burns victims, are, keep their arms in, which was invented because of that. There's lots of science kind of and breakthroughs medically because of some of the grafting that went on. And, and so from a science and medical point of view, lots was learned. But from a football point of view, that combined with Hillsborough and High School really changed the way that we watched football, you know, in terms of mm. safety in stands and grounds and uh, that duty of care to a football fan going to a game that, you know, shouldn't have been sat on a tinderbox, basically, where a cigarette was discarded and that's what that's happened. That's it so, happened. Oh, my God. Yeah, mm.
0: It's terrible. Absolutely terrible. And you mentioned two other massive tragedies there as well. And, you know, we, we do have to, it's, it's like what you were saying about taking care of people. We have to take care mm. of, of fans
2: As Mm. well,
1: you know we have to put people. We are the ones that pay the money, isn't it?
2: Yeah, Yeah. of course. Mm. Well, that that was seven years before the start of the Premier League, and obviously um, Hillsborough was a year later, and Heysel was the same year as Bradford and. And you, I think those things and the reports that were kind of emanated from it were part of the reason why football had to have a good look at itself about how, you know, and obviously the Premier League became synonymous with the kind of riches of the Premier League but actually what the Premier League did was a fo- allow clubs to then have better stadiums mm-hmm. and, you know, all those things that kind of came from from that and the, the money trickles down uh, to, to to the lower league clubs. But, we shouldn't have had to go through those things no. to
0: yeah. get there. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I remember growing up in, in Glasgow and in the, the Ibrox disaster, you know, for mm. 60 people died in that. And, you know, my dad was at that game and, and just mm. the, the sheer terror, you know, it, it's mm. absolutely horrendous. And you do sort of think it, that is a real what if, you know, of all the mm. what ifs, that mm. one is the big one, isn't it, that you went through in your family and... It's mm. just one of those things. If you just gone the
2: other way, if your mum mm. hadn't shouted to you, or mm. I
0: know, remarkable, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely
2: yeah. remarkable. And we were a few years older, even we probably would have been more independent and yes. said, "No, we're not." Yes. You know, we're going to do this, and or even if we'd split up as a group, you know, like you know, being the eldest, I was the one responsible for getting everybody, you know, mm. here and there, and yeah. and how that would shape you then. Like you, you know, you talked about what if you were a man, would your career have been different? How that would have shaped because a lot of things shape the way you develop in life don't they and obviously my brother died seven years after that and that probably had more of an impact actually on the family but I think Bradford had almost sown a seed of I know there was a my dad probably went through a lot more at that point than he Mm. let on because he went to probably about 30 funerals in as many days and he was constantly wearing a black tie coming home from a funeral with his eyes red and and I think Nobody really reached out and said, "Would you like some counselling? Can we, you know, Mm. can we can we talk about this?" We were three kids who've been in a massive disaster, and nobody ever said these kids might need some trauma counselling, or you know, at some point might need to talk to somebody. But that's the way mental health kind of has developed as well, isn't it? And you Mm. look back now and think, God, that's ridiculous, isn't Mm. it? That whole family went through that, and nobody ever sat down and said, "Let's have a chat." Different times, Mm. thank Mm. goodness, that we've Mm. actually actually got better,
0: don't you think? Yeah. Mm.
1: Will make things way more cheery now. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I wanted to find out about some of your favourite sports performances that you've seen. If there's any Ooh. any things you've been to that have been like that was the best thing I've ever seen.
2: It's it's always the one you've just come from, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. And so, I, I, yeah, I, obviously this year everything's been so remote. You know, mm. the Olympics. Obviously, we did from Salford on a green screen. Some people still don't believe that. People still keep coming up to the supermarket telling me they're glad I'm home. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> it did look pretty good. No, you, I thought, have though, to you thought they were there. I did. I uh, said, Oh, that's brilliant. They've managed to get to I
2: know, No, no. <laughs> I know. It's such a shame. But you can't beat those, you know, those uh, stadiums that are full with amazing matches or performances when you're mm. in the middle of all that and the energy and some that, you know, I love, I do the rugby for the BBC and I do love the six nations because you get that tribalism and the singing and the whole kind of, you know, that lovely kind of rivalry between the nations and, and I love those 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 days and those matches and um, and the athletics has given me a load of great joyous moments in the last few doing the, the kind of world championships with Usain Bolt winning and you know mm-hmm. those nights uh, are really special because you're watching somebody do something to be the fastest man in the world you know or I even I did a, the Eliud Kibchoge sub two hour um, run uh, that he did in Vienna I hosted that as well and that was. I stood there on the, uh, the platform watching him cross the line thinking, this is like a man on the moon stuff, you know, that somebody's yeah. actually run under two hours. It's incredible. Um, and it's about, for me, it's like the kind of humans kind of pushing themselves and into areas that have never been gone before. And it's not, as I said before, about women in sport. It's not about making everybody on the sofa think they can run a sub two hour marathon. It's about thinking, what could I do that I didn't think I could do? How could I, you know, I I can believe a bit more in myself and and push myself. So those joyous moments are so just motivating and inspiring and being there with a crowd and seeing everybody get that joy out of it. Yeah, I'm I'm beating about the bush here, Rosie. I'm not giving you a a, a definite answer, am I? Because I find it, you know, I genuinely kind of go from one event like that to the next and think, oh, that was amazing. Oh, that was amazing. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, um, the the not having crowds for eighteen months has certainly, I think, given me a huge amount of appreciation for how much the crowd and the audience yeah. add to those performances. Mm.
0: Oh, they really do. I mean, yeah. we were we were lucky enough to go to the Scotland-England game
2: yeah.
0: um, and you would have thought that we'd won the World Cup. Well, you, you thought always... we'd
1: won before they started even playing. <laughs> just, yeah. just happy because to be there. Just, just happy so to be there.
0: And it was like, you know, it was like we, it was like we had won even yeah. though it was just yeah. a draw. Yeah. Yeah. But it was just such a joy to be out and to be, yeah. you know, because we, we singing. both... Singing. Singing. Yeah. We yeah. both we both support Dundee United and obviously we've not been able to, to see that. And, and even when we have been able to see it, there's not been that much singing has there? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no.
2: Not recently. Not recently. recently. But your team is your team. Yeah. You have to stay with them. You really do. <laughs> but you know, when I was a kid, actually, I went to Wimbledon. I was, I was about eighteen, nineteen, And for the first time, I knew somebody who worked at the BBC and we got some tickets. And I saw my hero was Steffi Graf when I was a kid, and I watched her play against Gabriella Sabatini. I think it was a quarter final match, and I remember that. It's only a quarter final match. It wasn't like it was one of those moments where you sit and you see these two supreme athletes close up, and it made me kind of just see them almost as these ethereal beings. You know, they felt Mm. so different to mortals, and they were just um, amazing. And I think you get those moments through your life where you realise I'm so lucky. That was one of those moments where I I wasn't even working in sport. I thought, Oh my god, I'm so lucky to see them up close. And then I've tried never to take it for granted. You know that I do get to to see these performances and meet these uh, people, and they are just regular folks at the end of day. They're people who are you know just just normal guys and girls who have a talent and work on it. But obviously, they they do remarkable things.
0: Can we talk about your gorgeous man?
2: Ah, I mean, we talked a little yeah.
0: bit about rugby, but isn't he? Go- where did you, where did you two meet? I mean, were you were you was it at work thing? Were you commentating on him or what happened? No, I
2: hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't presented rugby at that point, and uh, when I met him. I was on my way home from a night out and I would decided three weeks before I wasn't having a boyfriend. I was never going out with right. men. You know, it right. was that kind of like, yeah. I'd, <laughs> I'd been unlucky in love. And ever. and uh, so a girlfriend who lived near me, we were in a cab together and she said, oh, there's this bar. It's, I've been here a few times. It's really nice. Let's pop in for a drink. I said, it's quarter to two. It'll be closed in 15 minutes. And she was like, come on, come on. So we get to the door and the bouncer wouldn't let us in. He said, no, no, no. So we've got 10 minutes to closing time. What are you doing? And a friend of mine walked by the bouncer and he said, oh, I know them, let them in. So suddenly we got into this bar at 10 to 2 in the morning and the girl I was with was a, um, a producer at Sky and she worked on the rugby. And she said, oh, I know those guys. They're from Wasps. He said, I, I did a piece with them last week and she just marched over to these guys and started chatting to these very tall men. And Kenny, not as tall. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then the next thing, Kenny turned around and started chatting to me and he went, then disappeared to get a drink and apparently went to one of his best mates, Simon Shaw, and said he was chatting up Gabby Roslin. And, oh. uh, <laughs> And now, I, now because I've been with him for over 20 years, what I realise is he's very dyslexic. There's certain things he just never gets right. And we've had three dogs. He's never got their sexes right, ever. He calls the girl <laughs> dog a boy, he calls boy dog a And so we just now, the whole family just know it's Kenny, right? So I don't think he thought I was Gabby Rosny. He just knew my name was Gabby and he couldn't quite right. kind of remember what my son... And so this friend said to him, no, 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 that's no, that's that's Gabby Goroth. She does the football, on ITV. And he was like, oh, right. So we went round to this 24-hour cafe across the road and just sat there till five in the morning chatting. And I remember... At the time, thinking I could listen to him talk, which is just as well because he doesn't shut up. I <laughs> listened to him talk for a long time because he had such a lovely voice. And it's that Scottish accent, ah, yeah. And uh, And then that, yeah, we had a very nice, slow courtship because he was playing for Scotland and going off for a week with Scotland, then coming back and playing for WASP for a week. So we were kind of, you know, we'd have a proper date and then he'd go away and then we'd, you know, so it was a nice, kind of slow build up, really. Yeah, but I kind of knew. Did you? Did on. you know quite yeah. early on? I yeah. think
1: when you know, you
2: know. Yeah. I, I honestly do. But what if you yeah. hadn't
1: gone past the bar? I know. Exactly. Or got let in.
2: I know. And not gone in. <gasps> what, yeah. What if the bouncer had said no? I... I <sighs> I do, that was a real sliding doors thing because yeah. I was quite reticent to go on. You know, I, I, said, mm. I said, oh, come on, we're in a cab now and let's just go home. And I was really kind of, I was a bit fed up with, you know, I felt like I was in a bit of a, a groundhog day with mm. my social, and just going to mm. the same places You're and sure. doing the same things. And I was a bit kind of meh. And she was, Tam's this friend of mine who now lives in Australia. She was like, come on. they kind of grabbed me out of <laughs> the cab. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> grabbed me out of the cab and found me a husband. That is your is it? We all need a wingman like that, that's, that's <laughs> a really good one. But you know what the funny thing is though? Rosie you say that and then we both say we knew so many people in common and it would have happened lived, well yeah. he lived half a mile from me as uh, well it was... didn't even know but I don't know if it would have done but I just you know mm. now we look back and go, god we even like we were both patrons of the charity Sparks and I was like, how have we never met at a Sparks event you know we ended up becoming presidents of Sparks later on but we'd done various charity events for Sparks which now is part of Great Ormond Street and hadn't ever met so it's, it's funny isn't it life I suppose in that instance delivered maybe maybe my eyes were open to what I needed at a different time or what you, mm. you know what I mean, when mm. you when you kind of... I mean, Kenny always has his expression, what's... Uh, what's for you, won't, won't go by you. Go by you. Yeah. Yeah. It's very then, Scottish. Very <laughs> but, <laughs> but then Kenny adds on to it, but sometimes you might have to trip it up. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like what's for you, won't go by you. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a, a good one. Is that, is that a Scottish one? Is yeah, it? Mm. very much yeah. so. Is yeah.
1: it an East Scottish thing? I don't know. I used to hear it in Edinburgh.
0: Yeah, probably.
1: Although it's right. spread
0: throughout the country, I think. Just so. Scottish? Yeah. It's kind of like, if you, you know, if something horrible's happened or, or something's not quite worked out. Mm. Then you just say, well, what's for you? won't go by you. Mm-hmm. So it'll, it'll happen. If it's meant mm. to happen. When the time is right, it yeah. will happen. Okay. And I think yeah. that's quite good. That's like a Betty, it's things. a
2: bit like that Betty Ford quote, isn't it? Um, it'll be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, it's not the end. Yeah.
1: Oh, I
0: Which like that. I Very like good. Well. Yeah. That's a good one. I really mm-hmm. like mm-hmm.
2: that. Um,
1: so by the end of each episode, we always ask our guests the same question. So we do fail, regret and win. So we'll start mm-hmm. with a fail. And then we'll...
0: Mm. What do you think's your biggest
2: fail you don't have to have one to be honest no I've got lots to choose from (laughs) the thing is though about failing I think I realized I was quite lucky sport gave me the realization quite early on in my life that failing is really important in terms of development and growing Mm. and it's not to be I don't, don't avoid it because you'll never learn as much as you do from a fail, right? So, so I had lots of minor fails. Like I failed my driving test for the first time. Um, you know, didn't pass it first time. And that was very traumatic. As my mum always used to say to her friends, she's never failed before, which wasn't true. But I was, I literally was crying on my bed. I couldn't believe that somebody had said no to me and that, you know, what? I'm not going to drive home from it. And um, but I think when I look back at my, my my kind of what I learned so much from that was a big failing. Now it doesn't look like a failing on the cover. It was when I did strictly come dancing, I went out quite early and I I think I, and that's not the failing per se, but what I realized was that I didn't understand what I was. I was there. I was like a sportsman. I'm going to, I'm going to dance and kind of, and I didn't embrace the whole Mm. thing. And I think it taught me a lot about myself and how to kind of just, I don't know, it wasn't so much just chill out a bit, but just to kind of like enjoy all the other stuff, you know, and not just be so single-minded sometimes and focused on something because there's so much more in life to kind of embrace. And that whole experience taught me a lot about me. It taught me a lot about the industry. It taught me a lot about kind of how to get a bit more balance. So so it was a, a strange learning, I guess, rather than a failing. You know what I mean? It yeah, wasn't, it yeah wasn't, I do. I know oh, exactly. But, See, um,
0: I, I have been asked to do that and I cannot. So I am so... I, you know I just think you're fantastic for doing that. Cause you did it the same year as Kenny, didn't you? The two of you. Yeah. I yeah. think
2: Garroway was on okay. that year, Alicia oh, Dixon. Oh wow. It was an unbelievable year and it was brilliant. I loved it. I would never say a word against it. It is amazing. If you get ever I mean you've been asked a million times but if, oh, if anybody scared. is listening and wants to do it it is amazing. And you know that that taught me a lot actually and I think I, I think I would approach it differently if I was to do something uh-huh. like that again.
1: To have more fun.
2: Yes. More yes. fun yeah. is good.
1: Um, mm-hmm. And what about a regret?
2: Um, I think, again, regrets are kind of, you know, you at the time you try and it's to do with failings and, and you think, well, I'm not going to regret that. I'm going to try and learn from that. But actually, you know, it is OK to have regrets, I think, and to think, oh, I wish, I wish I had done something a bit differently and I wish I'd behaved in a different way there. And there's lots of micro regrets in my life in terms of, I should have been a bit more tolerant with that person or I should have been, you know, you know, you, know, you have those thoughts in the night and think, oh, I shouldn't have been quite so quick to, you know, make a decision on something. But actually my brother dying, I was never to know that that would be the last year of his life. But I'd taken a gap year and went to live in London. If I'd known that was the last year of his life, I would have lived at home for a year. And I'd have mm. spent that time with him and got to know the teenage him even more because at 14 when I left and he was 15, well, 15 when I left, I didn't know that that was, you know, that was mm. all I would ever know of him, and so I think that's that's a a, a major regret in many ways.
1: Mm. And um, what about a win?
2: A win? Well, it's got to be that that Scottish husband, has not he? Absolutely. Uh, I think. I think. And family is, you know, my my nuclear family. You know, the the, the four of us. That's my biggest pride and joy. That you know that I have a family that I, you know. I'm so grateful for and and I think try and get balance with and and I honestly you know Kenny is such a great ally and such a massive supporter of me and giving me so much confidence and I think I wouldn't do what I do I couldn't do what I do and our team couldn't work how it works you know without him there so um, yeah I think that's oh that's
0: fantastic I love that I love to hear stories like that when it's a an eco partnership with you know both of you supporting each other it's proper partnership, mm. proper mm. partnership.
1: Gabby, what a joy.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely oh, delightful lovely. to talk to you. We could talk to you for ages, couldn't we? I know. Just sitting and So lovely yeah. to chat to you two <laughs> as well. Before we go, one more word about the disruptive new Beauty Buyers Club that's become, well, a little bit of an obsession for Rosie and me. It's Beauty Pie.
1: Thousands of people are already enjoying getting up to five times more health and beauty products for their money. The prices are so low, they make the beauty industry blush. Imagine being able to buy a super expensive Swiss anti-ageing face cream for only £16. Or our famous dermatologist's favourite retinol serum for under £17. Just join and you'll get insider prices on the best beauty products every time you shop.
0: And don't forget to use the promo code LKSENTME all one word, to get £10 off your first order when you join.